Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot of the artists I looked up to and the writers I looked up to their lives and careers had been marked by tragedy. And I think believing that for myself was kind of a coping mechanism because to live a long, happy life, you have to look after yourself. And I wasn't, I didn't want to look after myself because I didn't think I was worthy of it. Welcome to Figuring Out 30. This is a podcast exploring the chaos, confusion, and clarity of life in our 30s. I'm Bridget Husswait. I hope you're good. I've had a really busy week. I spent a bit of time in Sydney last week, the South by Southwest. It was the first time that, um, I don't know if you've heard of South by Southwest, but it usually happens in Austin, Texas. And it's pretty much like this huge conference slash live music gathering kind of thing. They talk about, you know, like there's brands, technology, music. And um, obviously I went for the the live music side of things. I got to go with Warner Music and hosted their live showcase. So that pretty much means just like two live gigs across two nights that were showcasing Warner signed artists. So I just like hosted the stage, hyped up the artist, um, stuck around, did some, you know, video content and it was awesome. It was really cool. Um, If you haven't already, go check out Blair, which is this new content platform. It's a content platform that I've been kind of working on this year with my music presenting. It's where I've interviewed, if you follow me on Instagram, and I've done um, some fun interviews with like Maisie Peters and Keita Alexander and Anne-Marie and stuff. So Blair is this content platform that is pretty much amplifying like the stories and the the music of Warner signed artists. So if you go on my Instagram, you'll see some videos that tag them. And actually my yeah, most two most recent uploads were Blair content. So yeah, it's been awesome to kind of do that this year and be able to continue my music presenting because that's obviously, you know, my my big passion. It's the core of my presenting work. Um so yeah, Sydney was fun. Then I had a random 24 hours in Perth, had a little zip across the Nullarbor for yeah literally 24 hours and I got my period there which was honestly hell I this is this has been a painful period my friends like the first few days of it not pretty cramp city population me um but back home in Melbourne feeling better now but yeah a big big week with a random finish um and that's all I can say on it at the moment but life life has been crazy and it will continue to be crazy and I will tell you more about that soon but I'm very excited for you to hear this episode of figuring out 30 it's all about self-love and it's with the delightful Samuel Layton Dorr who is an artist and author and screenwriter based on the Gold Coast and also the creator of the smile tiles which you may have seen online he explains what they are and how it has led to his beautiful new book, which is honestly so on brand for this podcast. So Sam's new book is called Wow, It's All A Lot, which honestly, just by the title, you're like, wow, yeah, I feel that about my life. And it's all about celebrating the middle bits. So the messy, the awkward, the uncomfortable, 
while navigating our way through the uncertainties of life. And if there's ever a time in life where you were thrown a lot of uncertainties, um, it is definitely that transition into your 30s. And I mean, look, I can relate to this just based on what has been happening in the last week, which again, I'll be able to talk about at some point. Um, But essentially this book, Wow, It's All A Lot, is just a really heartfelt celebration of not quite having life figured out you know, and celebrating that realization and acknowledging that it's just a continuous process, baby. We are continuing to figure it out as we speak. We do touch on a few dark points. I just want to flag that. Uh, We talk about Sam hitting rock bottom. There's mention of like substance use, suicidal idolizations, mental health, just want to flag that content. But overall, it is a chat about hope and self-love and worth and how Sam's relationship with those things have evolved. So let's get into it. Sam, welcome to Figuring Out 30. It's great to have you on the pod. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat about your gorgeous little book that I have here. Daisy was just resting her sweet little head on it. But let's start. This is a question that I um, usually start with for the podcast, right? And I feel like I'm so interested in the first part of the question. So it's expectation versus reality, right? So growing up, what did Sam envision for himself uh, by the age of 30? And then what was the reality? Because I know you've, you've written about approaching 30 or the idea of even being 30 or rather not. So do you want to start with, yeah, what, what did you envision for yourself by this age if you had envisioned anything at all? Yeah, it's a weird one because I kind of never imagined myself as a 30-year-old and for a, you know, a big stretch of my teen years and early 20s, I had trouble imagining anything. There was no kind of blueprint for me to follow. I think I struggled a lot with mental illness and depression and I overdosed when I was 16 and there was this kind of real kind of dark belief within myself that I would be a tragic artist. You know, my life had been defined by mental illness and by creativity and a lot of the artists I looked up to and the writers I looked up to hadn't lived to a healthy age and had kind of their lives and careers had been marked by tragedy. And I think believing that for myself was kind of a coping mechanism because to live a long, happy life, you have to look after yourself. And I wasn't, I didn't want to look after myself because I didn't think I was worthy of it. So it was almost a lot easier Mm. for me to subscribe to the whole live fast, die young, MySpace emo culture of the time. And what was your MySpace song? Oh, there was definitely some Evanescence, some Red Jumpsuit apparatus, <laughs> some Simple Plan. I had the the Black Fringe, the Pentagon necklace. Oh, he went I, through it. I went through it. Um, I committed to the bit. And, but yeah, in my head, your 30s was for getting married, having a stable job, buying a house. And, none of those things I had ever been a priority for me. I, so I kind of wasn't sure what that decade could look like for, you know, a potentially single creative gay person who was, has always kind of picked the the path of most resistance when it comes to, to work and, 
and life. So the the expectation was that I might not be here. And the reality is that I am here. So that is quite a big difference. <laughs> it's um, pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty contrasting. <laughs> yeah, I guess the upside of that is that I'm now able to imagine my 30s for myself without the expectations. The older I get, the more I meet people in their 40s and 50s who don't have kids and who have unusual careers and the more I meet those people, the more I'm able to kind of feel comfortable in my choices and not see money and stability and traditional family structures as a reflection of my success, Mm -hmm. but rather the creative fulfillment I have, the relationships I've built, my community, the the fact that I know when I get to the end of my life, I'll look back and have no regrets about my choices because I always chose to do the thing that I felt passionate about. And I'm trying to kind of reimagine success in that way and embrace that for my 30s as opposed to, you know, the disease of comparison that I've struggled with for a long time. So as you were approaching 30 and getting closer to that age, or even, you know, the day that you did turn 30, did you stop and actually think like, wow, didn't think I'd be here? Or did you notice the shift in when, you know, maybe the the mindset changed as to, you know, life beyond 30 is a realistic thing and I can, I can do this? I got married when I was 29 and then, you know, the week after we got married, COVID hit and... That was also the time that I started therapy in an ongoing kind of capacity for the first time. So by the time I was 30, it was kind of this period of just intense flux in terms of career, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of, you know, new mental health diagnoses and stopping for the first time in a long time. I think I spent a lot of my 20s running away from things and running towards things, but never standing still and... Turning 30 was the first time in my life I've had to stand still. And the reflection that came with that was quite profound in a lot of ways. So I felt like I entered my 30s in a new headspace, not having worked anything out yet, but with a greater understanding of what I wanted my 30s to be, which was to get closer to who I was as a child in terms of my spirit and my inclinations and the way I express myself, that's kind of become my mission statement for my 30s, even though it's an ongoing process. It is. We are figuring it out as we speak. It's not just a a destination, is it? Like you don't just, you know, hit hit it and be like, oh, figured it out. We're good. Like you were just constantly working. It would be nice, nice, but there is beauty in being works in progress for sure. And You know, in terms of self-love, because I think your book's such a beautiful reflection of that and the importance and I guess, you know, listening back to how you were living your life, uh, you know, as a a teenager in your 20s and stuff, how has the the blueprint of self-love evolved for you? Like how would you compare your perception of self-love in your 20s as opposed to your 30s? Because it sounds like a pretty... Um, significant shift as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was lucky to be raised in a very loving, creative, supportive home environment. So I think from the ages of like 
from the age of zero to five, I think self-love was a bit of a default setting because everyone around me loved me. I didn't know anything different to that. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until I started school that my relationship with myself became more about survival and more about developing a sense of how other people expected me to be and inhabiting that expectation as a way of keeping myself safe and keeping myself not at the bottom of the social ladder because, you know, I was bullied quite significantly all throughout primary school, went to an all-boys school in year seven and, you know, there was physical abuse and emotional abuse. And so it, it, I think in a lot of ways my my teenage years and my 20s were spent trying to love myself even though I wasn't being myself. So I was trying to practice self-love with my inauthentic self and that's not really possible. So there was this, there's this, been this constant tension, right, between me presenting how I think people want me to be and trying to love that person but the act of trying to love that person was only taking me further away from who I really was and creating more tension and suffering in my life. So it kind of took me hitting rock bottom in my late twenties to, to wake up to that and to realize I'd gotten so far away from who I once was and to start folding that natural joy, that natural color and creativity and expression back into the way I move through the world. I, um, but I also think, you know, I know if you can't love yourself, how are you meant to love anybody else is the the way to go and you're meant to love yourself first. But I think there's also been, you know, I, I'm, I'm married to my first ever partner. We met when we were 23. And I think being loved so relentlessly by someone who has seen you at your worst kind of created this case study for me because I, you know, I'd spent my entire life collecting evidence that I was unlovable and unworthy. And every time he didn't leave me, there was more evidence that I was worthy and that I was lovable. And after years of that, suddenly the pile of evidence is much higher on that side than it is on the unlovable side. And it kind of becomes irrefutable. You have to kind of acknowledge that maybe there's a possibility that I am okay and that I'm not a bad person (laughs) and that I am worth something to someone. And so in a lot of ways, I think I was loved so hard that I had to start believing it and practicing it myself. And I know that's a very lucky thing because a lot of people don't get that. But I do sometimes wonder if left to my own devices throughout my 20s, whether I would have worked it out myself because I was on such a rough path for such a long time that part of me thinks I would have just spiralled out of control and having an anchor in my relationship has has been a saving grace in a lot of ways. Oh, and this is Brad, right? Shout out Brad. Shout out Brad. Hey, Brad. So what, what does rock bottom look like for you what did rock bottom look like for you if you're comfortable kind of painting that picture yeah I mean rock bottom is an is an evolving thing right like you think you've hit rock bottom mm-hmm. and then you find a trap door and you fall down further and you're like oh <laughs> 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 oh I get it it keeps going my experiences of rock bottom have been around for a number of years I think self-medication came into it I think 
binge drinking and smoking and drug use in my early 20s was quite a defining thing. I made reckless decisions. I would, you know, book flights overseas without having any money and then I would struggle overseas and wouldn't be able to get home. Like, you know, just kind of these these off-the-cuff choices that weren't really congruent to um, mental health. <laughs> um, and I think that does catch up with you after a while. And when you're so on, I mean, every time you, every, well, personally, every time I, I drank to get drunk, I was doing it so I didn't have to feel something or I didn't have to confront something or I didn't have mm. to be authentic in front of people. I didn't have to feel scared in a social situation. And when you get so used to doing that and you do that as a default for a number of years, you end up dependent on this thing that isn't sustainable and when something's not sustainable it eventually runs out and that kind of happened to me I got to a point where I couldn't keep going without causing noticeable damage to you know my family my relationships my career and so to me realizing that I had a problem in that department and realizing that my mental health conditions were not simply generalized anxiety as I had believed my whole life and that I actually have OCD and complex post-traumatic distress, um, complex post-traumatic disorder. Um, it's, yeah, it kind of, I wasn't as far ahead as I thought I was. And I had to realize that and acknowledge that there were actual real problems that wouldn't go away unless I faced them. So in a way, turning 30 was a process mm. of turning around and looking at myself for the first time, as opposed to just looking at the future, which is so easy to do when you don't want to <laughs> look at the past. And I did not want to look at the past. Um, so it was kind of this counterintuitive thing of actually going back in time as I was moving forward and and processing the, my early years of, of life and kind of reparenting myself in certain areas and you know, kind of grieving, grieving all the years that I wasn't authentic because once you realise how much of yourself was a response to your environment, you do kind of wonder, God, like I could have been having a lot of fun in those years and I could have found my people a lot earlier and, you know, there could have been a lot more joy and that realisation is confronting. But... Yeah. So, I mean, look, literally rock bottom for me is lying on the floor crying, you know, isolating myself from my friends and family, dark thoughts, intrusive thoughts, often around around harm and, you know, harming myself. I don't, I don't struggle with intrusive thoughts around cleanliness or germs. It's always kind of anchored in me being a bad person and those incredibly hard to mm. unhook from so yeah occasionally it feels like there's just a a slideshow in my mind going faster and faster and f- hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After depicting every bad thing I've ever done and bad things that I never did do, but I've convinced myself I did. <laughs> when you mentioned COVID before and we're talking about um, alcohol, so on the topic of sobriety, because that seems to be you know, a huge smiling point for you, which is amazing. There was a bit that you wrote and it stuck out to me. I can't remember if it was, maybe this was in an SBS piece. I don't think it was in the book. I'm pretty sure it was an online article. And you said, by my early 20s, I didn't know how to process joy or disappointment without a drink, let alone catch up with a friend. By my late 20s, a bottle of red uh, felt as inherent to my sense of self as my sexuality or creativity. So the timeline, you know, with COVID, did you go go through those lockdowns all that time sober? Is that when you started it? Full disclosure, I'm not, like I, at the moment, I do drink occasionally. I so I basically I did a full year yep. of sobriety and stopped drinking for a full year, which was the first mm-hmm. time I'd done a year of not drinking since I was fifteen. Like it was not something I've ever done. Wow. I got it How so was confronting that? <laughs> and it was so hard and it was so great and I learned yeah. so much about myself and I, I loved parts of it. I also, you know, it was confronting because I realized I'm not actually very social when I'm sober. Like I had always considered myself to be social, but suddenly I just actually quite like just being by myself. And and I, I actually find, you know, big social events quite draining and confronting and difficult to navigate sober. So that was quite a realisation. But I also, you know, discovered exercise it and I started boxing and doing gymnastics classes and, and weird things I never never would have done before. Oh, wow. So in that sense, it was really, really great. And I, I got to a point where my, my, my new thing, and I, you know, I encourage people to have a, to have not a, you know, obviously some people really need to stop drinking and they need to stop drinking forever. And, and you know, I can't speak for them. But I think there are a lot of sober curious people and people who are wanting to try Mm -hmm. life without alcohol. And, you know, I would encourage those people to not put so much pressure on themselves that if they have one drink, they feel like they're they're back to being drinkers and they have to binge drink again. Like I do think that there is room there for negotiation. And, you know, for the last year and a half, I have not had a drink by myself. And at one stage in my life, I would have knocked off work every day with a drink by myself. So, and I'm not that social. So I'll I'll go weeks and weeks without drinking. And then I will let myself have a cocktail when a friend comes up and visits. And kind of negotiating that with myself has been a really positive thing. Because after a year of not drinking, when I did have a drink, I felt like a huge failure. And I realized that feeling like a failure in that context was actually quite unhelpful because it made me feel bad about myself. And when I feel bad about myself, I'm inclined to drink more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was actually this thing of, you know, I mean, I've since been prescribed um, medical CBD, CBT oil, um, THC oil, um, CBT oil, 
No, it's not <laughs> CBT. It's what I do at therapy. Um, <laughs> yes. And that has been a huge help because you know I have a bit of chronic pain and and there's always um been that sense of just needing to soften life a little bit mm-hmm. um but yeah letting it not be all one thing or all another thing has been a really helpful thing in terms of navigating my relationship with alcohol but I would 100% recommend everyone try it do a year it was like a huge growth uh period of growth for me and mm. really actually let me sink my teeth into therapy in a way I don't think I could have otherwise. Let's talk about smile tiles. Um, do you want to explain what they are first of all and then how you came to make your first one? Yeah, so a, a few years ago was I started therapy. I, I had been to therapy before but never, never, never fortnightly, never for more than a few months at a time, never with a therapist that I connected with. And, you know, this was the same time I was starting a psychiatrist about certain diagnoses. And I was basically spending a lot of time in different waiting rooms, mental health waiting rooms. (laughs) And the art on the walls in these waiting rooms bummed me out so hard. (laughs) It was just the broadest, most widely palatable art imaginable like huge airbnb auntie art vibes black and white barnyards horses frozen mid gallop waves curling in on themselves you know just paddocks paddocks for days (laughs) Um, the occasional bit of unironic like driftwood art and you know, creativity and art has always been my way of processing my experiences in the world and understanding who I am. And I'd been wanting to get into ceramics and clay, but had no real technical skills. So I started rolling out these, you know, 15 by 15 centimetre tiles in my kitchen with a rolling pin and engraving different self-care phrases into them and I never really planned them ahead I always made them up as I went and the words break at awkward parts and the lines are all wonky and um but I started yeah engraving all these kind of affirmations to myself into these tiles and then making them really pretty and hanging them on my wall and sharing them online and there was a real response to them and I started selling them and they became they kind of took on a life of their own and it's been yeah probably three or four years now since I started making them and you know I think there's over a thousand out there in the world now hanging on different walls there's a therapy there's a uh, a psychiatrist in in Perth who has um, their waiting room is is covered in them and and that was a real full circle moment for me I love that yeah I think I mean I think there's something People with anxiety or complex mental health conditions spend a lot of time consuming short pieces of advice, short quotes, short affirmations online, on social media, kind of we look at them, we might save them, we might scroll past them, but very rarely do we actually put them into practice and remember them in in an ongoing capacity. So for me there's something special about sharing quotes that are incredibly specific to your experience and being able to find very specific overlap with other people's experience and having those words 
rendered into a precious object that you can hold and run your hands over and it's breakable just like we are and fragile and you can hang it on your wall and look at it every day and it feels important. Because I think, yeah, I think art is a really, a really helpful, special way of being vulnerable but also starting difficult conversations. There's such a resistance to to vulnerability and a resistance to sharing our fears and our anxieties with other people. And I think art lets us start tough conversations with a smile and with like a curious head tilt. And I think when we, when we approach difficult subjects in that way, our defenses are down and we're open and yeah. So they kind of became my way of, of, of practicing this radical vulnerability where I just share different anxieties and share different self-affirmations once a week or something and having people having them resonate with other people was a really connecting experience for me so it's kind of been this labor of love this ongoing project and Mm. and yeah it's very very lucky to be able to turn my collection of tiles into into a book which is a bit of a colorful coffee table companion book for anyone going through a hard time. Yeah. Oh my God. I love a coffee table book. Like the design and everything about it is just so beautiful with, with the, um, the tiles. Is it, have you found that there's one in particular that has been like the most popular or the one that has seemed to resonate with the most amount of people? Or uh, One of my tiles says rest you beautiful, busy weirdo, which is I think the most, popular one simply because you're hard pressed to find someone who isn't a little bit burnt out at the moment I think everyone is too busy and everyone is grappling with different ideas of rest and different and different ideas of slowing down and what that looks like so that one's been very popular but the one that I think means the most to me is one that says that scary thought is real but is it true which I made for myself when I was really struggling with OCD and really struggling with intrusive thoughts that were telling me really awful stories about myself. And I kind of had to make this distinction between something being real and something being true because the stories are real, the thoughts are real, the impact these thoughts have on me and my mental health is real and the impact is really difficult and I've got to honour that experience by acknowledging that these stories are real but they're fiction. Like these things are not true and there is evidence to prove they're not true. And kind of separating those two things, which are very easy to conflate, was a real breakthrough moment for me. What's like the biggest thing that has you smiling right now? And it can be a small or it's trivial, like, you know, it doesn't have to be a big grand thing for me. Like as an example, the the highlight of my weekend was getting a a new peg basket for the clothesline. Like just, I don't know, I'm so stoked about it. Just the little things or it can be something really big and significant. Um, What's been the biggest thing that has you smiling right now? I'm reading a novel for the first time in a long time. The novel itself isn't making me smile because it's quite dark. (laughs) But the fact that I'm reading a book is making me smile because it's something that I fell out of practice with for ages. And, you know, the act of making time to do that is is quite a happy one. Um, But I'm also learning how to walk on my hand, walk upside down on my hands. Oh, wow. 
do a gymnastics class once a week and we learn how to do handstands and, and walk on our hands. And it is the weirdest thing in the world. It feels so dangerous, even though it's <laughs> quite safe. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, I hate to use the phrase a spirit of play because I feel like everyone's always saying we need to embrace a spirit of play. And, you know, it's a, an easy thing to say, but it's hard not to giggle when you are physically moving upside down. And <laughs> it is quite a literal way of looking at things from a different perspective. <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite enjoying that because it's it's so outside of my comfort zone and, um, you know, I'm not very good at it. And it's I'm somebody who struggles to do things that they're not good at yeah. because... Oh, well, because all my validation came from achievements as a young person and now mm. I feel like I'm, you know, I could go on forever. But doing something that I'm very bad at once a week with good people has been a very special thing and I hope I, I never love... get good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to get good at, good at it, just keep enjoying it and that's being good at it, I feel, in turn. Yeah, exactly right. That's so cool. Oh, my God. That's so niche. It's not even niche. It's just like it's such a random thing. I fucking love it. <laughs> I'm always trying to, I mean, if, I, if I'm not doing some kind of exercise, my mental health crashes so quickly. Mm-hmm. It's so important for me to do it. But I also get incredibly bored by exercise. So for me, it's this constant thing of having to find strange, unusual, interesting ways to to move my body and yeah, there's been, yeah, boxing, kayaking, gymnastics. Like, I'm not great at any of it, but I'm okay at a lot of it. <laughs> hey, you, and you've got range. Range, truly. You know, I say this in every in, in every podcast interview I do, but if you're a Survivor casting agent listening to this, please get in touch. I'll be very bad at it, but I'll be good TV. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> my I could never do it because my period pain would just be next level and I get hangry like no other bitch. Just oh so you can do I it mean, and I'll yeah. do Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Realistic, realistically, I'd be medivaced for mental health reasons after two days. <laughs> like just taken oh. up in a helicopter, having an anxiety attack. But Have you have you watched Alone? Yes, I, I, I am quietly obsessed with Alone. Oh, my God, I'm I, so obsessed. I, I would last. Maybe not even a day. Not even an hour. Like the minute I, my stomach rumbles, I'm out of there. <laughs> I'm tapping yeah, out. <laughs> if, I heard, if I heard a leaf, a leaf rustling, it would be. <laughs> um, no, I, I do love. I mean, I love. I love that show for mostly for the emotional side of it, seeing people, seeing the the realizations people have about themselves. I think is. Yeah. It's more interesting than like eating a chipmunk liver. Yeah, <laughs> like, setting up the snare. <laughs> I'm not that interested in the actual survivalist components, I guess, but I do think it's interesting watching people be forced to face who they are mm. due to a, a stripped back environment and lack of lack of stimulation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I am obsessed. I have binged like four seasons straight. I'm on the Australian one at the moment, which I don't think is as good as some of the others, but it's still um, it's still good watching. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was interesting watching the Australian one. And, 
you know, because the American ones are so hardcore. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, re- you have to kind of respect the Australians. They were like, you know, half the contestants after two days were like, nah. Yeah. And it just, it just, it's, it's dragged so much. Like it was literally like, t- you know, five or six episodes in and we're on day three. And I'm just like, fuck it. I know. <laughs> this is really dragging. I think True. we're finally up to day 22 now. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a fun premise for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for joining me on the pod. It's been such a pleasure. And I'll put the um, the link to purchase Wow It's All A Lot in the show notes of this episode. But here's to smiling throughout the rest of your 30s and the rest of your life and hopefully not beyond 90. <laughs> Hopefully the next two trimesters. I'll, I'll be getting out the walkie-talkie and saying I'm, I'm, I'm tapping, tapping out. out. <laughs> <laughs> I am tapping out. Life has been long and I am ready. Um, <laughs> and I hope it doesn't happen again. I'm really against the idea of reincarnation. If I wake up after dying and I am a baby again, I will be screaming and crying. I'll like, be dead. <laughs> I'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, Absolutely not. <laughs> anyway, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. I appreciate it. If you want to stay connected with Samuel Layton Daw, you can do so. I've popped his Instagram handle in the show notes of this episode and the link to purchase his book, Wow, It's All A Lot. So please go check it out. Thank you so much for listening to Figuring Out 30. This is a completely independent project created on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And next week is the final episode of the year. It's with the one and only Angie McMahon, Melbourne singer-songwriter. Her new album is out on Friday and it's heavily based on Saturn Return and Angie surrendering to that and making her transition, you know, into her 30s. She is 29, so we have a beautiful conversation about her life, her final years of her 20s, and, of course, her artistry and how she kind of, you know, captures um, and documents her feelings about getting older and Saturn Return in her music. So I'm really excited for you to hear that one next week. Until then... Take care and thank you so much again for listening to Figuring Out 30. Love ya. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.